Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode 172, The Celt Cast. I assume it's going to be part one. This show is free and independent due to member support. And as thanks for helping keep the community going, I offer members-only content, such as extra episodes and rough transcripts. If you're interested in supporting the show and helping us out, you can do so over at thebritishhistorypodcast.com. And thank you very much to Dan, Amy, and Nicole for contributing already. As you probably know, the members' feed is currently focused upon the Norse. And also, we're talking about what we know, and a lot of what we don't know, about those enigmatic Norse gods, and Norse spirituality in general. And here's a sample of what they're listening to right now. Death is a strange thing. And how we relate to death can tell us about ourselves, where we see our place in the world, and what we hope for the future. When we search for Scandinavian burials from the Viking Age, often what we find are mounds located near a village, presumably so that those left behind can visit the grave. The mounds are sometimes marked by a pole or a stone. We rarely find rune stones because rune stones are typically placed at locations that would have had heavy traffic so that they'd be viewed often. Now the contents of a mound appear to have been based upon prestige and wealth, but generally, looking at a grave doesn't really tell you a lot about how the burial was carried out. We already know that from our talk about the mounds at Sutton Hoo. And in many cases, this would be where that talk stops. But we're fortunate because we have Ibn Fadlan, an Arab envoy, who was able to witness a Viking funeral on the Volga. And he wrote down what he witnessed. When he asked the Norsemen what was about to happen, they told him simply, quote, we burn him in fire in a moment, and he goes at once to paradise, end quote. However, the eyewitness account by Fadlan is so much more than that. Fadlan tells us, quote, When a chieftain dies, slaves and servants are asked who will die with him. The one who volunteers cannot alter the decision. In this particular case, it was a woman who was treated with great courtesy while the burial was being prepared. On the day of the funeral, the chieftain's ship was drawn up on land, and people walked around it and said words. A bier was placed on it, and cloths and cushions laid on it by an old woman called the Angel of Death. She was responsible for the preparations. He was seated among the cushions in the tent on the ship, with alcoholic drink, food, aromatic herbs, and all his weapons. Then a dog, two horses, two cows, a cock, and a hen were killed and placed in the ship. The woman who was to die went round to each tent in the camp and had sexual intercourse with its owner. After this, she performed various other rituals. She was raised three times above something which looked like a door frame and said, I see my master sitting in paradise, and it is beautiful and green, and with him are men and slaves, and he calls to me. Lead me to him. Then she killed a hen and was taken to the ship, took off her jewelry, drank two beakers, and sang, and was finally taken into the tent to her dead master by the angel of death. Six men followed her into the tent and had sexual intercourse with her. Then she was killed. The closest relatives of the deceased now lit the firewood under the ship. Others threw more flaming brands on the fire, and within one hour, everything was burnt. 
Then they built a mound on the spot and raised a pole at its center with the name of the chieftain and his king on it and went away. End quote. I know what you're thinking. The History Channel's Vikings actually got something mostly right. And so did the 13th Warrior, for that matter. It's pretty exciting. And if you'd like to hear more, you can sign up over at thebritishhistorypodcast.com. Okay, today we're beginning the process of creating a singular British history podcast. The sidecasts made sense when the story was first beginning. But now, rather than helping you understand the story better, they're confusing it. And so today, we're merging the Scottcast and Welshcast into the Celtcast. I'm eager to get the story moving forward, and I'm guessing you are too. And so I'm going to give a whirlwind tour of what's been going on in Scotland and Wales, since we have already most of the story in the Made podcast. And I'll just give you the stuff that's important for the Welsh and Scottish kingdoms. Sort of a forest view of what's been happening, with some added details. But if you'd like more information, the main podcast will include a lot more material that's relevant specifically for the Anglo-Saxons. Now we've brought the story of Wales up to the point where we were when we last left off in the Scott cast. Let's pick up our tale. So, it's 685. And to give you a sense of place, here's where we are. The Northern Welsh had briefly surged into power and dominated the Northumbrians under the leadership of King Cabwathlin of Gwynedd. However, Cabwathlin was eventually killed by King Oswald of Northumbria. Cabwathlin's son didn't do all that much, and for the most part, the Northern Welsh were knocked out of the fight for quite some time after Cabwathlin was killed. Wales's position wasn't helped by the fact that it appears that there was a major plague tearing through the Celtic West, killing a huge number of people, including Catwathlin's heir, King Cadwallader. Any hope of the Northern Welsh taking over Northumbria probably died with him. Making matters worse, there was no mention of the plague in the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, which suggests that it was mostly restricted to the British kingdoms which could have placed the Anglo-Saxons in an advantaged position. This is a common theme when looking at this era. The records seem to indicate that the British kingdoms were hit with virulent outbreaks far more often, or were more susceptible to outbreaks, than their Anglo-Saxon neighbors. There are several reasons for why this might be happening. First, it doesn't look like they had a ton of cross-cultural contact. So any vector for disease that hit the British shores, but not the Anglo-Saxon shores, would probably have stayed in British lands. Second, the Anglo-Saxons had only been on the island for a couple hundred years, and it's possible that they held a genetic resistance to these particular plagues, especially if the plagues were coming from the continent. This is what happened centuries later when European settlers entered the New World. They were more resistant to European diseases like smallpox, as they had been living through outbreaks for generations. But those same diseases devastated the indigenous American population, because they were encountering them for the very first time. Something like that might have happened in Middle Ages Britain. Unfortunately, we're not sure exactly what the cause of these plagues were, or why they only seemed to hit the British. But whatever the case... It looks like the Welsh kingdoms were having a hell of a time of it in the 680s. Their British allies that were bordering with Northumbria were being annexed. And even Carlisle was now in Northumbrian hands. And it looks like those that survived the fights were now dying of pestilence. This must have felt like the judgment of an angry god. 
And if that disease stretched all throughout the West, it could explain why the Southern Welsh weren't expanding or taking part in a campaign similar to what Cadwathlin of Gwyneth did. They might simply have lacked the manpower to take the fight to the East. Meanwhile, the Anglo-Saxons were engaged in something of a mutual killing spree. King Oswald of Northumbria was killed by King Penda of Mercia, and then King Penda was killed by the brother of the guy he killed, King Oswiu of Northumbria, and there were all kinds of minor nobles and additional family members that were caught up in this murderous rampage. If you can't remember the details, I highly recommend going back and re-listening to those episodes on the main timeline. It's an amazing story. But eventually, in 670, King Oswiu died, leaving the kingdom of Northumbria to his son, King Egfrith. You might remember King Egfrith from the end of the last Scott cast. He was the Northumbrian king that fought King Bridie of Pictland, somewhere near Avon and Caron. That battle was a disaster for the Picti. Stephen of Ripon tells us that the Northumbrians killed so many Pictish warriors that their bodies filled up two rivers. And then they walked across those bodies and killed the crowd of onlookers for good measure. Most likely the family members of the warriors who had just come to watch the fight. This loss by King Drest of Pictland was devastating, and the Picts ended up retreating to lick their wounds. During this time, they put Bridie on the throne. But here's the really interesting bit. Even though they suffered a terrible loss, and they were now likely a tributary or even sub-kingdom of Northumbria, there were still warbands that came to Bridie's service. Rather than being demoralizing, this turned out to be a galvanizing moment for Pictland. Just like in the Anglo-Saxon timeline of the Heptarchy, where we saw glimpses of a united England, here, beginning with the Pictish response to their loss to King Egfrith of Northumbria, we're seeing shadowy hints of how the Picts were moving from individual and occasionally rival kingdoms into a single unified Pictish nation. That loss, as horrible as it was for the Picts, appears to have given them common cause. And while King Egfrith and his thanes of Northumbria were focusing on important matters on their southern border, the Picts were quietly gathering strength. In the meantime, the Northumbrians were giving the Picts plenty of reasons to want a war. The Archbishopric of Canterbury, in apparent collaboration with Northumbria, had recently appointed an Anglo-Saxon as the bishop to the Picts. But at the time, the Picts weren't powerful enough to fight back and so they accepted Bishop Tremwina and allowed him to set up shop at Abercorn. But the message was clear. King Egfrith of Northumbria was in charge, and southern Pictland was a mere tributary. Shortly thereafter, Northumbria invaded Ireland, and Meath was devastated. It isn't clear why Northumbria attacked the Irish, especially since the Northumbrian dynasty had once sheltered there. But one theory is that King Egfrith was looking to punish the Irish for their support of the British kingdoms against Northumbria. If true, then the conflict was serious enough that it was now spilling out into neighboring areas. And across the wall, in Pickland, King Bridie still ruled. And he still remembered the loss at the Battle of the Two Rivers over a decade earlier. Sure, it put him in power, but it had also been a mark of shame. And they have been shamed by the actions of Egfrith and his Northumbrians ever since. 
Pictish warbands were steadily coming to Bridie's banner. They were aching for a fight. So while Egfrith was engaged in bitter wars with Mercia, sometimes suffering terrible losses, and while he was sending out invasion forces into foreign lands, King Bridie was consolidating. He was training his warriors. He was preparing. King Egfrith might have been treating southern Pictland as a province of his own lands, but it was clear that the Picts disagreed. And in 685, they had enough power to exercise their independence. We guess that because in this year, King Egfrith gathered his war bands and looked to the north. What probably happened is that Bridie refused to pay tribute. Or perhaps he refused to recognize Egfrith's overlordship. Whatever the case, Egfrith marshaled his forces, and even though St. Cuthbert asked him to stand his men down, he marched north. He went through Strathmore, crossed the Tay just as Agricola had done all those centuries earlier, and was going deep into Pictish lands, bringing war to his cousin, King Bridie. Oh yeah, did I mention that they were cousins? While their cultures and kingdoms might be different, their families were pretty close. It also appears that Pictish warriors were fighting in both the Northumbrian and Pictish armies. The clear ethnic lines that we imagine are really muddy the closer we look at them. The writers of the annals were themselves indicators of this, because they referred to this conflict as, quote, a great battle between Picts, end quote. Honestly, I think you can make a good argument that it was exactly that, too. Though, I think you could also make a good argument that this was the Picts versus the Angles. And get this, scholars believe that King Bridie had a mixed army, with King Maeldwin's Scottish warriors fighting along with his Pictish warbands. Not only that, but the border between Pictland and Northumbria appears to have been a bit porous. And we know that the Anglo-Saxons had been heading north to learn in the monastery of Iona, even before the Anglo-Saxon conversion in the 6th century. They would have been in the north in some number for hundreds of years. And so it's entirely possible that King Bridie had some Angles fighting in his army. And so if we had different scribes, we might be reading about the great battle between the Picts and the Scots, or the great battle between the Angles. Isn't this era fun? Now, as you know from the main show, King Bridie doesn't appear to have been spoiling for open war. Egfrith and his Northumbrian army had to advance much farther than they likely intended. One interpretation of this information is that King Bridie and his army were pulling back. That would have been wise, since it would have bought him some time, allowing him to gather more warriors to his cause. By using guerrilla tactics, Bridie could tire the advancing army, and then choose the time and place of the engagement when he was good and ready. On Saturday, May 20th, 685, in the afternoon near Forfar, King Bridie and his Pictish army met King Egfrith and the men of Northumbria. This is known as the Battle of Dunachin, or the Battle of Necton's Mara. Now this is probably where I should take a moment to talk about equipment and tactics. Remember, Anglo-Saxon warfare was typically an infantry affair. At most, they would have put their scouts on horseback. However, judging from the sources, like symbol stones and what few written records we have, the Picts utilized mounted warfare. We see carvings of Pictish warriors controlling their horses simply with their legs and feet, 
leaving both hands free for combat. A sign of a master horseman, suited for cavalry battle. Whereas the scattered images of Anglo-Saxons on horses show them using reins, thus taking away one hand for potential fighting, and also indicating that they probably weren't as comfortable on horseback as their Pictish neighbors. And you might be saying, what? The Picts had cavalry? Yeah. And some of the close listeners might also be saying, was this a holdover from the old Celtic days? And the answer is, I have no idea. But it's not out of the realm of possibility. It is important to note, though, that if it is a holdover from the old Celtic days, unlike the ancient Britons who were fighting against the Romans, these Picts don't seem to be using chariots. However, chariots weren't heavily used in Caledonia, even back then possibly because the ground is much too rocky and poorly suited for wheels. So maybe this is entirely a holdover from those old days. I wish we knew more about this, but most of it appears to be lost in history. As for why the Picts were continuing to use cavalry forces while the Anglo-Saxons had converted to a pure infantry force and were only using their horses for status and transport, well, we can only turn to conjecture since there weren't anthropologists running around back then. But if I had to guess, I'd say that once the Anglo-Saxons started using a shield wall, cavalry became largely a luxury item and sort of a burden on the battlefield. Because a mounted cavalry charge is nearly useless against a shield wall. They might as well be a strong breeze. The horses that were available in Western Europe during this period, and actually later periods, were simply too small to be able to break through. So while the Anglo-Saxons had horses, just like the Picts did, they don't seem to have used them in battle. Rather, it looks like they rode to battle, dismounted, got into a shield wall, and then they fought it out, because that was what was most effective. The shield wall was so effective for the Anglo-Saxons that they even used it centuries later at the Battle of Hastings, precisely because a steady, well-organized Anglo-Saxon shield wall was an effective defense against infantry forces and a disaster for cavalry forces. All they had to do was hold their formations, and the horses were rendered useless. This was a serious problem for the Picts, and for King Bridey. And actually, while we don't have a detailed account of the Battle of the Two Rivers, the battle where pretty much the entire Pictish army was massacred, it is entirely possible that the Picts had learned the hard way about how effective a well-organized shield wall could be against their horses. However, the Northumbrians could not engage in a foot pursuit and maintain their shield wall. If the Picts ran, then the Northumbrians would have to mount their horses and follow, or at the very least, break up their formations and run after them. So, on that afternoon of May 20th, 685, when King Egfrith met King Bridey and his men on the field of battle, King Bridey immediately fled, and the Northumbrians gave chase likely sensing an impending victory. The powerful shield wall was broken. Now Bede tells us that they led the Northumbrians into a narrow pass. However, Bede had never been that far north, and he was relying on the word of others. Also, scholars have had a hell of a time nailing down exactly where this battle could have been. For all we know, there might not have even been a pass, and it might have been a bit of poetic license by whoever was telling him the story. The passage really wasn't necessary for what came next. The shield walls had been broken. They were vulnerable now to the Pictish cavalry. And once they were spread out, 
disorganized, and deep in the unfamiliar terrain, King Bridey sprung his trap and attacked. The Northumbrians didn't know what hit them. The Picts remembered their last battle with King Egfrith, and they gave no quarter. King Egfrith and his entire royal guard were killed. His warbands were massacred nearly to a man, and the army of Northumbria was devastated. This should give you a sense of the scale of these fights. We're looking at hundreds, not thousands, of warriors per side. An ambush like this and the tactics employed by Bridey wouldn't have been possible if he was commanding a Roman-style legion. This was a guerrilla fight. It was gang warfare. But simply because we aren't seeing the loss of tens of thousands doesn't mean that this wouldn't have been a catastrophic event for Northumbria. The warrior class were professionals. They had to be trained up. The average Northumbrian, just like the average Scandinavian, were farmers. They weren't warriors, and it would take years to train and arm a new group of them. The balance of power had shifted substantially at Necton's Mera. Following the battle, the borders between Northumbria and Pictland were reestablished, with the Anglo-Saxons falling back to the Antonine Wall. The Anglo-Saxon bishop, Trumwina, fled south, and there would never again be an English bishop of the Picts. Even the Irish regained their independence following this fight. This battle had a seismic effect upon the British Isles. The victory was so complete that it would be nearly 300 years before the English would go that far north again. Not only that, but the political world for the Strathclyde Britons and the Dalriadan Scots had changed following this battle, as they were also freed from Northumbrian domination. However, scholars suspect that they didn't have true independence, but rather immediately fell under the Pictish umbrella. King Bridey could now count himself among King Cabwathlin, King Urien, and all the less famous British kings that had harried and defeated the Anglian kingdoms of the north. The Anglo-Saxon northern expansion had halted. And at nearly the same time farther south, the Welsh held their borders, and the men of Gwent defeated a West Saxon invasion into their lands on the Severn Sea. If this was an ethnic conflict between the British and the Anglo-Saxons, this was a bad year for the Anglo-Saxons. But as you know, the reality is that it was mostly just a bad year for the Northumbrians and West Saxons. And probably an incredibly good year for the Mercians. Seriously, that is a really lucky year for King Aethelred of Mercia, right? Two rivals got beaten up at the same time and he didn't even have to lift a finger? It's amazing. But unfortunately for the Welsh, things continued to go badly in the West and we see a continuation of Brythonic migration to the Amorican Peninsula, modern-day Brittany. The language and traditions of the Britons became dominant throughout Western Brittany, which suggests that the migration was a substantial one. But in the north, the victory at Necton's Mera had brought them some much-needed breathing room. Eight years later, in 693, King Bridey of Pictland died, and he was buried at Iona. He was succeeded by Tehran, son of Entefidich. It's thought that he might have been the half-brother of Bridey. Maybe. It's hard to say for sure because our records aren't great, but we have typically seen brothers and half-brothers inherit as the Pictish royal dynasty was traced on the female line. Whatever the case, King Tehran appears to have been a rather weak king, 
and scholars suspect that he might have also been a bit too soft on the issue of Northumbria. And there certainly was a continuing antipathy among the Picts towards the Anglian kingdom to their south. It hadn't been all too long since the devastating loss of the Battle of Two Rivers, after all. And now it seems that power in Pictland was concentrating in the hands of an influential noble by the name of Bridie, son of Durail. A different Bridie than the one who died recently, by the way. Bridie was just a popular name. So Bridie, the new Bridie, was the son of a Pictish princess, which gave him a claim to the throne. And he was also the son of a powerful noble family of Dalriada. That's a formidable lineage, and it would have given him allies in both kingdoms. Given the current king's weak stance, and his rival's rather strong one, it should come as no surprise that, only four years into King Tehran's reign, in 697, he was deposed, and he fled, as many nobles tend to do, to Ireland. In the Irish annals, he continued to be referred to as the King of the Picts. But it doesn't appear his countrymen agreed, because as soon as Tehran was sent packing, Bridie, son of Darial, was crowned king. And now the nobility of Dalriada and Pickland were united in a single ruler. And while that might have been part of the reason that he was selected, it does seem that an aggressive war footing and a prior softness from dethroned King Tehran regarding Northumbria was another deciding factor in the Pictish coup and King Bridie's elevation, because he wasted no time in securing his domain and pursuing war with the Northumbrians. In 698, just one year after he took the throne, we're told that he fought against the Northumbrian army and killed their leader, Bertred, son of Berneth. The sources are silent on specifics. We aren't even given a location. But scholars suspect that this was a Pictish victory that further consolidated the gains that they made at Necton's Mera. This was a major turning point for the Pictish people. And from the limited evidence, it looks like Bridie cemented his claims. And now, the Picts were unified under a single rule. In just a few short years, the Picts had bounced back from their humiliating defeat. And now, they had crushed the powerful army of the North on multiple occasions and had unified into a single nation. These events, though often ignored or forgotten by many, played an incredibly significant role in Scottish history. And some scholars have gone so far as to say that had there been no Necton's Mera or the consolidation of the Second King Bridie, Pictish unity and the later establishment of Scotland might not have been possible. The Anglo-Saxons were no slouches. They had taken over and annexed most of the British kingdoms of the East. But in the North and in the West, there was still strength. And they would not give up their lands lightly. All right, if you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com. And we're on Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, everything. And you should totally join us on Twitter. I really like Twitter. I wasn't too sure about it before, but I've really warmed up to it. So on Twitter, we're at British Podcast, and we're on everything else as well. If you want to find links to that, you can go to thebritishhistorypodcast.com and look in the upper right-hand corner and just check it out. All right, thanks for listening. <laughs>